In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition. It's intuition. Which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that suggest reasonable explanations for things. Hello and welcome to Two Shrinks Pod. I'm Amy Donaldson and I'm joined by Hunter Mulcair. Today we'll be chatting about attachment, about how it applies to therapy and a little bit about theory, and then we'll be covering uh, a couple of articles that caught our eye this week. So Hunter, do you want to get us started? What I thought we would do is to talk through attachment theory and just the basics of it, and to give you guys an overview of it, um, I, I've been practicing for many years now as a psychologist and I still find it useful to go back over different styles of attachment and try and think about it. Maybe that speaks to the way I was trained and attachment wasn't really... Wasn't big on the list? Wasn't big on the list. Mm. We were very much cognitively, behaviourally trained and that doesn't speak directly to attachment stuff. But anyway, so we thought we'd give you some theory and then what Amy's going to go through a study and if we've got time, I'll go through a study as well. Yeah. So the name is uh, Bowlby, John Bowlby. He, uh, he proposed that it's natural for norm, uh, and normal for humans to form a close attachments um, to select others, so to caregivers or you know, usually their parents, and from infancy across the lifespan, right? And so this theory was originally created to explain the intense distress exhibited by children when they separate from their parents. And they would then have attachment behavior, which would serve the purpose of ensuring that infants remain within the safe proximity of caregivers. So this is thought to confer a survival advantage so that, you know, you would, if you're separated from your parent, then you would say, and then you get taken care of and this reduces vulnerability of predators. And so the theory from an evolutionary perspective would be that if you're weak in attachment instinct, you'd be unlikely to survive to reproductive age. And so, as a result, this becomes a normative part of human behaviour. And it's probably one of those things that distinguishes us from other animals in that we're not able to protect ourselves at all for quite a substantial period. So you kind of need that extended attachment to other people and for them to look after your needs. Yeah, exactly Because right. you can't seek it out yourself. Well, if you think about, like, say, like a horse, yeah. um, which is quite a well, – it's like a mammal yeah. and quite an evolved organism – and they there's a period of like what, half an hour or something for yeah. an hour, but and then that horse can get up and run. Yeah, exactly. Right? Now it may, it may not be able to do much else, but it can do that. Right. Whereas human babies, it's, that's not happening at all. So, yeah. so this system's activated by separation or the threat of separation. So when the individual, the baby, and then later on the adult feels the threat of separation, or and or when they feel like the individual is vulnerable, like say when they're sick or, you know, when they hear a loud, a loud noise or something like that. So, and Ainsworth, in a, a later um, academic, elaborated the idea of the mother or the caregiver as a, as a secure base from which the infant explores the world and then demonst- demonstrate the importance of maternal sensitivity to infant signals. Uh, this might all seem a bit abstract in terms of um, psychotherapy, but if you then think about therapy and a therapist a therapist can essentially replicate this 
well, traditionally maternal role being the secure emotional base for patients that don't have, never had that secure base or don't have it currently or yeah. what they've got is lacking. So, um, and this, this, that kind of role is very important in uh, individuals suffering from personality disorders. Absolutely. Things like that, yeah. yeah. So, so the journey across the lifespan is from attachment early on to autonomy and then to individuation. So a well-loved child will experience and protest separation anxiety. So if you're listening to this and you're going, oh my gosh, you know, my child cries when I leave them, that's a good thing. That's what we want, right? Yeah. And what you want over time is that the child uh, develops self-reliance. So, you know, understands that the parent will come back, will be looked after. And when there's excessive separation, like as a result of, say, aversive family experiences, so, you know, a parent dies or a parent is... Uh, not emotionally available or something like that uh, that can create separation anxiety and also like separation anxiety can also end up being too low like for particular kinds of reasons and people can misread that as you know oh that child's very very mature when in actual fact um, they, they should be exhibiting more distress than they are yeah it feeds into my was it the previous podcast where I said you know psychologists were never happy <laughs> right always too much too Just enough. enough. Just enough. Yeah, <laughs> Goldilocks, right? Yeah. So the degree of need to be close to an attachment figure varies on depend and it varies and is dependent on things like the extent of environmental threat, vulnerability is determined by their age, um, physical state or their emotional state. So it can be a minor threat, but for a young ch- child, like a loud noise, that can trigger the need to be close. So so the system lies dormant when the person feels secure and it's activated and separation anxiety is felt when proximity is threatened or broken or when the individual is vulnerable. What a psychologist is usually interested in is, is the quality and patterns of interaction between the infant and the caregiver. So in most cases, this is the mother. Um, and as a result of that, you develop or the individual develops a certain expectations of attachment security and, and that's generally termed like a working model, a working model of attachment and stuff like that. So to give an example, to put this in context, the mother acknowledges the infant's need for protection whilst respecting, simultaneously respecting the infant's need for independence. The child was likely to develop like an internal model, working model of, of the self as worthy and competent, right? Um, if the mother frequently spurns the infant's attempt to elicit protection or independence, then the, the child will construct a working model of the self that's unworthy or incompetent, Yeah. right? So this is why you should, you know, if you're on your phone and the child comes up to you, you should respond, put your phone down, that kind of thing. Absolutely. It's sort of a modern day take on it. And just as an um, anecdotal um, story, yep. there's recently been an increase in kids with attachment difficulties in parts of the world where Botox is more um, common. Really? Yeah, absolutely. So they're having to do early intervention as sort of parenting strategies because when you have Botox, your face is frozen, so you can't um, express emotion as less much. Emo- less, less physically emotive. Uh, exactly. Visually emotive, yeah. And so there are children who are feeling like they're not being responded to because there's no expression of emotion in response to their presence and they're presenting with attachment difficulties. How fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, so that's really, really interesting. So that the, the children in that example, um, 
are developing like a working model that uh, for, based on sort of innate cues like that uh, the, the parent, the mother is... Disinterested. Is disinterested. Yeah. So, so humans are learning organisms. And so what we do is we learn from the environment and then we develop a working model and then we use that working model to predict behaviours of attachment figures and to prepare for their responses, right? So if we learn, if we don't learn that an attachment figure is not available, then we will keep doing the same thing and that's problematic, right? So yeah. we like, particularly if like, say your attachment figure lashes out at you every time you cry, yeah. or you get upset, then you'll keep getting hurt. So you learn not to do that, right? Yeah. Um, so the kinds of working models that we construct as individuals growing up is very, very important, very, very significant. So this is why psychologists traditionally will actually say, you know, well, tell me about your mother, tell me about your father, what was that relationship like? What yeah. was that relationship like with other people? We're not all emulating Freud. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. Sometimes. I'm, yeah, well, let's see. I mean, I don't know. I, I, I don't know Freud's stuff well enough to um, that kind of stuff. <laughs> but, and, so, and so the this idea of being secure people talk about being insecure but it depends on two elements or expectations so uh and we'll kind of this is these are the two things you need to sort of think about is like the degree to which the caregivers are perceived as reliable and responsive and the other part of the working model is the degree to which the self so yourself as an individual is worthy of care yeah right so people respond to you you learn that yes you are worthy of care people don't respond to you you start to think well i'm not I'm not important. Yeah. Um, that kind of thing. So once these working models are formed, they operate sort of uh, outside of awareness, so automatically or to use an older term, unconsciously. And what happens is we generalize these across relationships and they're relatively stable in the absence of relationship change. So although seeking attachment is a normative or basic need, individuals vary in their attachment system, their history, and so their working models of attachment vary. And so that influences how secure they feel and as, as a result, how their associated patterns of coping develop. So just sort of reiterate, so, so how secure you feel relates to the current environment circumstances, so the possibility of separation, how vulnerable you are, so you know, whether you've got an illness, and your internal working models of yourself, am I worthy or not? and internal working models of others. So, you know, do others, are others safe yep. or not, that kind of thing. So psychologists, what do we love? We love to categorize things. <laughs> Everyone in a neat, tidy box. The other thing we love to do is boxes and arrows. Oh, yeah. Oh, so the, if, if you're a psychologist and you're writing a research paper and you can do something with a box and an arrow. Yeah, 10 points. Oh, internal high five. <laughs> so satisfying. Anyway, so... Research have defined, well-defined habitual patterns of behavior and coping that are considered to reflect attachment behavior in adults. Yep. So now we're sort of moving from, okay, a general system of understanding attachment to, okay, as adults, how does this actually operate? Um, and, and then as a consequence, when you're doing therapy. So there's a three-group categorization, a four-group categorization. Three-group is secure, anxious, ambivalent, and avoidant. Four group is secure, preoccupied, dismissing slash avoidant, and fearful avoidant. 
hopefully it's not too complicated to follow like from an audio perspective visually it's kind of a bit easy to understand because you can draw like a grid but i'm wondering though if we give examples of each one what it might look like yeah well so um how about I read it out and then you give an example if you can. So, okay. so this, so if you think about these two, so two things. So, which is the, what's the model of self and what's the model of others? So, secure has um, you have a positive model of yourself and a positive model of others. So you're comfortable with intimacy and autonomy. Yeah. So um, traditionally, say I guess I'm thinking of children in this case, but you'd see kids who will um, go off and play and then return to their attachment figure to kind of go, oh look what I found, things like that, and they kind of know that they can keep on checking in. Yeah. Um, but then that they're always also safe to explore. Yeah. So there's a nice balance. This idea of like low dependence and low low anxiety and and low avoidance. Yeah. Right. So um, so preoccupied. So you have a negative model of self and a positive model of others. So what happens is you become preoccupied with relationships. Yeah. So you need to keep on checking in constantly with the other person, checking that they're there, um, checking that they come back and they go away. And that that counters your negative view of yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Dismissing. So this is you have a positive model of yourself, but a negative model of others. So you dismiss intimacy and you're what we call counter-dependent so it's like it's it's more than being independent it's like being super independent absolutely and in kids you kind of see um children who perhaps their parent leaves and they go off and play they're not really fussed that their caregiver has gone and then when they come back in they're not really fussed that they're back either they just keep on doing their own thing um sort of disconnected from from the relationship the last one in the quadrant is fearful. And so that that's, they have a negative view of self and a negative view of others. So they're fearful of intimacy and they're socially avoidant. Yeah, so this one, um, it's also called disorganized. And um, it's something that you often see in kids who have had traumatic experiences with their caregiver. And so you see quite an unusual pattern of behavior where like the traditional example is a child walking backwards towards a parent. So they're not facing the parent to be able to engage with them, but they're kind of approaching them. Um, And then the other thing that comes to mind is kids who will approach their parent, but then hit them or bite them or things like that. So there's sort of a, there's a mixed message there about whether they want to uh, approach the parent or whether it's actually not safe and they need to sort of lash out to defend themselves. Yeah. Or like kind of setting up a boundary or something. I mean, Mm. and and that's not uncommon for a child to lash out at you and then want to cuddle from you. Yeah. Right. It's more yeah. about the pervasiveness of it. Yeah. So I mean so that, you know, it might be bed it might be bath time. Yeah. You might be encouraging them to get undressed like they have to do every single night. Um and you know, you might have interrupted them for whatever they were doing. So that would be a normal normal response. <laughs> Your wound's still fresh. <laughs> This is completely hypothetical. <laughs> of course. Um, and, but, so, and I guess what we're talking about is like in, in a sort of a fearful mode, then it would be, it's more about like this is pervasive all the time. Yeah. Um, I mean, my understanding of these, these, these four groupings is that you would rarely sit all the time in one of them. And that certainly was the traditional idea of attachment theory, but I think 
that you would sit in just one. But I think now as well, they're sort of finding different um, patterns where say you might have a secure attachment with one person, but an insecure attachment to someone else. So there's sort of um, variability within yourself and within your contact with others. Yeah. Yeah. So, so fast forward to applying this theory to psychotherapy. So, what we've sort of found is that large number of patients in therapy exhibit an insecure or disorganized attachment, a fearful attachment. So psychotherapy aims to reappraise this inadequate, obsolete internal working model of relationships um, to with attachment figures. And so, you know, your therapist um, is sort of a, a safe health, quote unquote, healthy adult yeah. in terms of it'll be, you know, you have an hour with this person, they're emotionally responsive, they're trained to do that. They set boundaries. They set boundaries, yeah. which is what a good parent should do, yeah. right? Um, and what's interesting is patients will then impose rigid models of attachment onto, their th- onto the therapy relationship. And so a therapist and a patient will try and understand the dysfunctional parts of these working models. Usually you would talk um, about your relationships with, say, your, your current partner or work colleagues or whatever. But it, on, on time to time, if it comes up, you would also, as a therapist, you might sort of say, well, you know, it kind of sounds like, you know, you know, how come you're reacting to me in this particular kind of way? What's that about? Yep. Um, and so you can use the therapy relationship as fodder for therapy. Absolutely. Um, and that can be particularly powerful. Yeah so, that, yeah, so that can be particularly powerful when you do that well. Um, but, I mean, I certainly had, I've certainly had interactions where I've disclosed a particular element of my personal life and had patients respond very, very negatively yep. to that. Um, you know, because I was, I was like, oh, I'm going on leave because I'm going to get married or, or um, you know, similar other things. And they would view that as a breaking of trust and whole lot of stuff and being let down. And, they would, and so they would, I think, would lash out or act in one of these kinds of ways or something like yeah, that. Yeah, the intensity of the response was, was more than just about what was going on yeah. there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you, and that's kind of one of the ways we understand that stuff. So anyway, so therapist and patient will try and understand the dysfunctional parts of these working models and then the therapist will become a, or tries to be the safe base from which the patient starts to explore the world and rework these internal models, yep. working models. And in some cases, actually, the, the, you know, the therapist is really like trying to remodel this working model just even within this one relationship yep. um, and sort of showing how it can be done. So, you know, so that's not just always being nice, but like you sort of say, like setting boundaries and rules and limits and um, things like that. You yeah, know, being clear. Being yeah. clear, like, you know, the point is like, well, okay, look, I told you last week you had it, you needed a referral, yep. a re-referral, and you turn up this week and you haven't got one, so I'll see you next week. Yeah. Um, and, you know, as you get better as a therapist, I think you get better at doing that. Yeah. Uh, those kinds of things. So. Hmm. That's kind of a brief overview of attachment. Did you want to? Yep, sounds good. (laughs) So the article that uh, I came across that was about attachment is called Parent-Child Interaction Therapy as an Attachment-Based Intervention. 
theoretical rationale and pilot data with adopted children. So it's by uh, Alan Timmer and Ukiza. <laughs> Apologize if I've mispronounced your name. Um, and it's pre- it's published in the Children and Youth Services Review in 2014. A bit of background to this study. Uh, it spoke about how children who are adopted are more at risk of having experienced some sort of um, childhood maltreatment. Um, and they're also at risk of having multiple placements um, in their adoption history. So, you know, from days to weeks to months with different families. And that on top of that, they're at risk of externalising behaviour and a disorganised attachment. So that kind of, can I or can I not trust my attachment figure? I want to seek them out, but I'm too frightened. Um, the other part of, of the background is that family dynamics post-adoption can improve the emotional and behavioural functioning of that child. So it's not set that if, say, a child goes into an adoptive family and they're having a hard time coping, then that's it. It's that if the family dynamics are right and are supportive, that can improve. Mm. Yeah. So the idea was perhaps an attachment-based therapy could be helpful in working with children who uh, have externalizing issues. So things like behavioral problems, aggression, ADHD, conduct disorder, where there's lots of sort of physical violence and aggression and kind of like fighting against any rule possible. So essentially externalizing is like externalizing the internal stress. Yeah. Putting any emotion just out there yeah and so they also spoke about how uh the the evidence-based treatment for externalizing behavior in children is to use a parent-child therapy Mm -hmm. because if you can change that dynamic then you can help change the children change their behavior and change how they're coping so the aim of this form of therapy is to create a new adequate attachment relationship and i guess that's something that comes up in research quite a bit that you don't have to be the perfect parent. You have to be sort of the good enough, good enough. parent. Yeah. And so as part of that, then it's enhancing uh, the parent's responsiveness to the child. Uh, it's by, keeping... By lowering, the, lowering the perfectionism. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And making sure that it's sort of, that you're attuned to the child's well-being, to what they're focused on. Uh, that uh, in therapy, you focus on current issues rather than talking about what happened two years ago or a year ago or whatever Um, and that it needs to be relevant to the child's developmental level. So with all of that background in mind uh, they developed a study where they provided parent-child interaction therapy uh, to 85 children who had been adopted who were in primary school age. Though I think this is an international study because they went from um, age two to eight. So for us, that'd be sort of preschool yeah. through to mid-primary school. And so they applied this therapy and looked at the outcome. And so the therapy involves coaching the parents in how to play with their children in a way that's just the kid leads it so that they follow whatever it is that they're interested in doing at that time. They play alongside together uh, they, you know, praise them when they've done something well or when they kind of um, 
when they make a comment or interact, there's a lot of sort of positive reinforcement. And then the other component to it is parent-directed interaction, which is that limit setting so that parents give clear instructions of what they need their child to do. And that if um, whatever the family rules are kind of broken, then there are clear, calm consequences. So there's things like time out or having... Um, a toy taken away for a certain amount of time, but it's it's clear and defined and it doesn't come from aggression. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So uh, the study had um, really positive results across the board. So they found that a whole range of things were significantly reduced. So uh, children's internalizing symptoms were reduced. Um, so that's things like depression, sadness, anxiety, all of those, that sort of um, inner distress. Mm-hmm. Their externalizing behaviors were reduced. The intensity of the problems experienced by children was reduced and so were the number of problems. Mm. Parent distress was reduced. Uh, the dysfunction in their relationship with their children was reduced. And the parents also had a better perception of their children mm. and they didn't perceive them as difficult as what they found them before. Yeah. Yeah. So overall, it was a you know, really successful therapy to use and quite, I think, quite empowering of the parents mm. in that it's sort of practical. I can imagine with, with a lot of families, you know, um, I've certainly seen parents where they've gone, just tell me what to do and I'll do it. Okay. <laughs> and kind of, this is what you should do. Yeah. yeah. And, and this has a, quite a, it's quite directive in some ways in terms of sort of helping the parents set boundaries and things like that. Mm. But essentially, it's sort of modelling that secure relationship for the parents and then the parents model it for the children and sort of... Yeah, and you can imagine that if you're a parent that has a, dis, you know, a dysfunctional or semi-dysfunctional model, yeah, being told this is what you need to do is helpful and kind of gives you reassurance around it and then kind of frees you up. Absolutely. And I, and I you know, I think speaking from personal experience, when I've definitely made time to... Uh, spend much more one-on-one time with with one of my children or both of my children individually right is what I mean you you certainly you certainly see a payoff I think absolutely um and you know strengthening of that relationship so you know it's just kind of logical it's like give them give them some interaction warmth but also kind of Let's let's give them some clear, predictable boundaries. So, and I, I, if I can offer some unvarnished commentary, I think for many people, many parents nowadays, they very much struggle with the idea of clear boundaries, and and there's a lot of a lot of stuff which is called quote unquote attachment parenting, which is a bit different to what we're sort of talking mm. about, and this is a lack of kind of a routine and things like that, and. You know, I think I mean the people in a variability. Each child is 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 has their own variation in terms of how they're acceptable they are to routine. But kids respond well to limits. They actually feel safer when there are limits. Yeah. And so, and this is a problem. Like it's sort of this weird thing of like you've got to show love, but you've also got to set limits. And those two things kind of uh, feel o- uh, opposite. And, and it's no wonder that people kind of really struggle with that. Definitely. And certainly attachment research wise, that sort of style of parenting of sort of hovering and being there all the time or kind of, or even, or providing interaction without any limits has its own kind of 
can have its own negative outcomes in terms of attachment. It doesn't necessarily lead to a child who's secure. No, and and so so to to, to use the model, mm. if you're always if you're always there helping the child, yeah. then the child internalizes that they can't do things that they are yeah. incompetent. They can't cope without you. That they yeah, or that or they or can't the, or do the, it on their own. Yeah, like or that the world is dangerous, mm. and and so I need to be afraid of the the world. Yeah. And so it's this difficult thing of like you've got to try and teach them independence and resilience, but not to the point at which they feel abandoned and that, and and dismissive of intimacy and things like that. Yeah, so you've the, still got to be be the safety net. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's it's a it's a big challenge, mm. right? And so it's no wonder. I mean, so if you've got uh, parents who are suffering from you know, an addiction, personality problems, other, you know, just awful things happening in their life because awful things happen to people, unfortunately. And if that happens at a crucial time in a child's development, then it's it's very easy for things to go awry. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so I sort of, I I felt like the research fit with my understanding of attachment and also... I mean, I I haven't used this particular therapy myself, but when I looked at the components, actually it was quite similar to the work that I've done with children and their parents. Of A lot of, uh, I guess, helping to put some of that enjoyment back into spending time together because that seems to be a crucial part of it, of just having fun with your kids Mm. while also then coming up with ways of setting boundaries and limits that aren't violent or abusive or just 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 completely hands-off and just letting the kids... And, and actually, it's interesting as you say that, I, it makes me think of some of the couples work I've done. Yeah. And it's actually the same. Absolutely. Do you two ever go out on a date? Yeah. Like if you're talking about a couple. Yeah. Like when was the last time you had fun together? Yeah. Okay. You guys need to go and do that. Yeah. Make time. Okay. And then this other side of it, which is, all right, so when you guys are uh, pissed with each other, yeah. right, you guys need to learn some rules around... What are the limits? What are the limits and how to de-escalate from that? Yeah. Um, and that sort of highlights that thing that the attachment stuff, it's everywhere throughout your life all the time. And it it plays out in your roles with your own children, with your friends, with your colleagues. It's, it's one of those things that's just anything that's relational, there's a tendency for some of that attachment stuff to come in some of those interpretations and, and what's really interesting and amy and i talk about this quite a lot um <laughs> when we're not behind the mic but the is the way in which disparate groups of people within your life will treat you exactly the same way yeah absolutely so you can have <laughs> friends or work colleagues who have never met each other will never meet each other and they will treat you the same way yeah and some of that gets back to your your working model of your own self and your working model of others. And then as a result, the way in which you respond to other people and the way in which that response then triggers responses in other people. So, yeah, because they sort of seek out the same same patterns. They're comfortable, they're familiar. We kind of seek we, out the same tr- dynamics. Or we, or we trigger them. Or we trigger them in others, yeah. 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 I mean, so I mean, I remember like a really, really acute example was I got a referral and I was working a couple of different jobs at the mm-hmm. time and I, I got this phone message, so I called her back and I think she she I think she just said hello. Yep. But it was a particular kind of way and then I got like kind of this like I had this like nervous way of like over explaining it to the 
<laughs> like, and and it was, but it was like it was her her way of responding to people and my way of responding to people, and triggered with one 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 another, yeah, one word, yeah. And so and yeah, you know, and so and yeah, so that's kind of it's the power of it. Yeah. Did you have more on that? No. 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 So quick so, one. Yeah. So quick one. So so Amy was talking about how it's pervasive throughout life. So this is this is an example. Mm-hmm of where attachment is important at the end of life. Mm -hmm. So this is from a study by Marcus J. Hunter and a few other people from Griffiths University in Queensland, in Australia. Uh, It's a 2006 study and was published in Psycho-Oncology. And the title is The Influence of Attachment and Emotional Support in End-Stage Cancer. Mm -hmm. So there's considerable variability in the levels of stress distress exhibited by or experienced by cancer patients so you can have roughly equivalent disease and morbidity but person a not distressed or moderately minor minor distress person b massive distress yeah and so so there's a lot of interest to work out why so this study looked at attachment how it impacted on emotional support and thus psychological stress so emotional sports just what you're thinking of verbal non-verbal communication of concern of care and things like that and so we know that that in cancer is an important factor it's desired by cancer patients it's related to the adjustment to the disease and cancer and it's related to you know, social support the emotional support is related to positive outlook and hope for the future and a whole lot of stuff so they did a study with Terminally ill patients, so end-stage cancer patients through a hospice home care service in Brisbane. 67 patients, 87% were male, mean age of about 64, various cancer types. Uh, The time from diagnosis to recruitment varied from two weeks to 10 years. 25%, so a quarter of the sample were diagnosed less than four months before recruitment. So those people would have been sort of gotten sick and then was like, oh, told you're going to die pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. So... um, and they were interviewed at home and they gave them a measure of emotional support, um, a measure of adult attachment, so the adult attachment relationship questionnaire. And so that gives you four paragraphs which you rate and then gives you two scores and two d- dimensions, attachment anxiety and attachment avoidance. And then they had a measure of negative affect. So the results that they found was that, yep, emotional support negatively correlated with negative affect, so more, more support. Uh, less, less distress, yeah. right? Than, which is what you'd expect. What they found is that, so what they found was that attachment anxiety had a direct effect on negative affect and an indirect effect via emotional support. So basically, attachment anxiety influenced the level of emotional support you got and thus influenced the level of distress you had. And they also found that attachment anxiety had a direct effect on negative affect. Okay. The attachment avoidance had a, an effect on negative affect via emotional support as well. So if you, depending on your attachment avoidance level, that would influence the amount of emotional support you would get and then as a result would influence the distress that you got. So in English, what that means is that your attachment style influences the way in which, the level in which support you get on the level um, of support you perceive or how you take on that support and then as a result then that influences your distress level which fits with what we were saying before about that sort of you know you relating to others in particular ways and them triggering things in you as well absolutely yeah so yeah so you have an insecure model 
of attachment, this underlie, which underlies either attachment anxiety or avoidance. And that involves a belief that one is unworthy of care and so that care will not be forthcoming. And so this then influences emotionally supportive relationships. You don't think you're worth it, so you don't get it. There's lots of reasons for why that might happen. Attachment avoidance is known to be associated with ineffective support seeking. Anxious attachment is often associated with over-involvement or a tendency to be controlling. If you're withdrawn or avoidant or emotionally intense, then you have a harder time benefiting from supportive relationships. Makes sense. Yeah, so it's quite interesting. Um, They also talk about the direct effect of anxious attachment on negative affect. Which, I mean, that makes sense as well in terms of if you are more anxious about your relationships and about things going on around you, I imagine that that your negative affect would be higher anyway. Yeah. Sort of, yeah, yeah, fits. Yeah, and so I mean, they, and they talk about sort of like internal, terminally ill people that you know the attachment system's activated because there is an impending separation occurring. Yeah. So yeah, so that's kind of I thought that was really it was a really neat study, and they did complicated analyses with a sample of 67 people and found significant results. So if you're not a statistician, don't worry about what that means. But <laughs> if you are, then it's sort of, it's, they found a clear pattern of results even in a small sample, so large effects. And does that match with your work experience? Yeah, I, I mean, definitely. I think that you, the cohort of people who come into a psycho-oncology clinic Yeah like I sort of said before, will frequently be people who have more not secure attachment styles and frequently their relationships are not that great. Yeah. For you know, and there's lots of reasons why that is that that's not victim blaming, mm. right? Like you you put any relationship through cancer and cancer treatment that takes stress, a toll. That takes a toll. <laughs> yeah. But there's frequently there'll be discussions that you have around with a patient and and then say, I don't get support from my partner or they keep doing things that are irritating. Yeah. Or they just don't understand for whatever reason. But then you, one of the classic ones you get is that patients say, oh, you know, they don't, you know, my husband or my wife is not, is not helping me in the way that I need. And you sort of say, well, have you let them know? Mm. Oh, no, they should know. Well, should they? How would they know? Maybe you need to instruct them. Those kinds of so things. That sort of expectation reality doesn't quite line up. That's right, and and some of that can be related to attachment style and and the way that you relate because, you know, you might be this counter dependent individual who's always managed yeah. and has never and that your that your partner, quite rightly, has never had the experience of actually needing to help you. Yeah, and so you're both lost. So you're both lost. Yeah, right, and then that can cause quite a lot of emo- um, uh, partner stress. Yeah. So it's quite it's quite interesting. It is. As a psychologist, not that interesting if you're the patient. So. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> or, the, or the patient's partner. Yeah. And, and, and the other, other thing that can happen through psychotherapy is that the patient may suddenly start to get the emotional support they need and then change, and then that can actually change, challenge the relationship dynamic. Yeah. Um, so it's a therapist you need to watch out for that. Hmm. So interesting. Interesting. So should we take a break? Yep, let's do it. And we will come back with things we came across. You're listening to Two Shrinks Pod. See ya. Just experience with everyday objects that suggest reasonable. 
reasonable explanations for things. Uh, this is the bit where we, we normally say, check out our website, uh, which is twostringspod.com. And give us a whole bunch of stars or other praise on iTunes. Yes, yes. Don't give us, don't give us bad praise on no. iTunes. You can email us bad praise. Yep. Twostringspod. Privately for us to cry about. Yeah. <laughs> Talk to our therapists about yeah. that kind of stuff. Yep. Um, so that's twostringspod at gmail.com. Yes, and we also give a shout out to James Grimm, who writes our and performs our theme tune. Yeah, he comes in and performs it live every time. Just for us. Just for us. Yeah. (laughs) All right, let's get back to it. And we are back. Hi. Hi. Uh, So this is uh, things we we came across this week, Mm -hmm. which is our uh, segment, bit of a palate cleanse after the seriousness of attachment theory. And uh, we, we just talk about research articles that we've come across during the week that we have no real relevance to, well, just a, just yeah. interesting yeah. and we don't always get time to read them. Yeah. So um, let me start off. Amy, do you watch reality TV? Some, but not all. <laughs> Any, anything in particular? Uh, I like to watch MasterChef while eating things like toast. Yes. And occasionally I'll watch Survivor. Survivor, yeah. I, oh, I love Survivor. Yeah. I really, it, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Um, let, let's not get into an ad no. of about That's about ones. it. So, yeah, I was, I, I watched, been watching a little bit of different reality TV shows of late. And so that got me thinking. So the article I wanted to talk about, mm-hmm. well, actually, I'll start off with the research question. Why do viewers watch reality TV shows related to weddings and marriage? <laughs> so this is tuning into fantasy, motivations to view wedding television and associated romantic beliefs. And this is published in the Psychology of Popular Media Culture in 2016 by Veronica Hefner. Hmm. Um, so are we talking not just like your traditional reality TV show, but also like news about weddings yeah, absolutely actually oh, it's interesting you say that because it covers this this study covers both so uh before we get started into it just a shout out to 538.com they it's a website they also do politics podcasts and they also do culture stuff yeah and shout out to uh eliza cozy and walt hickey who recently so they do if you don't know 538 they do statistical analyses of politics of culture. They, oh, that's so you. Oh, it's so me. They predicted, one of the greatest things, they predicted like who would be the Oscar winner based on like all the different award ceremonies and like gave a statistical chance of that. Anyway, so I was inspired to this wedding TV article because 538 did a thing where they analysed the 33 seasons of The Bachelor and Bachelorette. <laughs> And then calculated that if you got the first impression rose in the first show, 50% of though that person, yeah, uh, 50% of those people would make it to the final four in The Bachelor or Bachelorette. It's not bad odds. A third would make it to the final two and 17% would win. Not bad. You're not looking that impressed. Anyway. Well, well I, I'm... <laughs> Continue. <laughs> so that was the inspiration, right? I jest about this article. This... The... the the Tuning Into Fantasy article is an incredibly well-written and researched article. It was an absolute 
pleasure to read. It Lovely. A lot, a lot of references, really, really well used. So at the time of writing, there was 32 wedding-related TV programs. No, 32? 32. This is an American study. And dozens no, but hang on. You mean 32 individual 32 programs. different ones, yep. That's right. And dozens of celebrities have televised their weddings. Uh, so in general, scholars claim that individuals watch uh, wedding-related television in order to fantasize about love, weddings, and fairy tales. However, empirical research is needed in order to substantiate the validity of these findings. Absolutely. Of these claims. Burning <laughs> so, question. <laughs> burning question. So they included two empirical research studies designed to assess the motivations and associated romantic beliefs of individuals who watch wedding TV. They talked about a theory, use and gratification theory. So instead of looking at what media, media does to individual, uh, individuals, this perspective focuses on what individuals do with media. There's a number of different motivations for watching wedding TV, including entertainment, passing the time, personal identity, like so identifying and understanding oneself, social interaction. So in order to interact with others. Okay. And then also that media can have can then also impact on your belief systems. So study one, they looked at the marriage of Prince William to Kate Middleton. Mm -hmm. 24 million Americans tuned in to watch that wedding. Wow. That is more than the population of Australia. Yeah, that's... Or or like equivalent, right? Massive. And apparently double the amount of coverage. So in America, there was double the amount of coverage than there was in the United Kingdom and Australia. Interesting. So So there's something about Americans. Yeah. So Mm. they did an online survey, 80%. 81% female, 112 participants. They asked about, you know, did you did you not watch the wedding and measured a few different things. So consistent with the theory, if you endorsement of romantic beliefs was associated with a desire to watch the royal wedding mm-hmm. and interest and positive beliefs about the couple. Uh, if you held positive about beliefs... both members of the couple? <laughs> you just said the couple. Sorry. <laughs> if you held positive beliefs for the couple, you watched and learned about love and relationships. And if you had a general interest in the royal wedding, you watched it for entertainment. Okay. Second study. So that was a one-off wedding-related thing. Mm-hmm. Second study, they looked at wedding-themed re- reality TV watching and endorsements of beliefs about relationships, loves and marriage. Um, and so they had 182 participants, online survey again, 81% female again. But and the results indicated four general conclusions. So entertainment is the most commonly cited reason for watching wedding-themed re- reality TV. Mm-hmm. Viewing it was associated with the endorsement of the belief that love conquers all. Watching for information and entertainment were strong predictors of the belief that love conquers all. <laughs> and perceived similarity of moderated the relationship between viewing and the endorsement of romantic beliefs. So like if you perceived a... Similarity with the cup with the individuals on the show. Okay. So they even had some recommendations. Of course. Uh, I shouldn't laugh. The results of this study demonstrate that viewing can largely be irrelevant unless the viewer is watching with focused motivation or perceived similarity. Parents, adolescents, therapists, and other individuals should be cognizant that the reasons for viewing matter. If an individual does not want to bolster belief in the ideal, that person should not view in order to glean information about love and romance. Conversely, if someone switches on the TV to watch wedding-related TV merely to pass the time, the associated beliefs, uh, associated effects of that exposure may be minimal. Mm. They also... Um, oh, sorry. Well, uh, well, the biggest question is, did they conclude with 
love conquers all. <laughs> they they didn't. They, uh, did, they did not. Missed opportunity. Um, and they sort of say that, you know, these types of programs uh, and televised weddings are a way to viewers to believe that reality can be translated into the ideal. This could lead to greater relational durability, satisfaction, even commitment, which means that viewing with this focused intent could be extremely helpful to couples. <laughs> That's it. And they have some directions for future research. So it well was done. a thoroughly written article. Sounds like you really enjoyed it as well. <laughs> <laughs> the grin that, on your face says... <laughs> that was a pricey. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> What's your article? Okay, so... I had Harry Potter on the brain this week, and so... Harry Potter. <laughs> Beautiful. And so, I looked at the article, Harry Potter and the Measures of Personality. Uh, extroverted Gryffindors, Agreeable Hufflepuff, Hufflepuffs, Clever Ravenclaws, and Manipulative Slytherins by uh, Chriselle et al. in 2015. So basically what they did was that they uh, looked... That was the title of the article. That was the title of the article. (laughs) (laughs) That was the title of the article. So um, they drew on a sample of people who had registered on Pottermore, which is the website associated with Harry Potter. Don't look at me like I know what you're talking about. J.K. Rowling, you're definitely on there. Um, And so they posted their research there. What's your username on Pottermore? I can't remember. (laughs) Confidential information. (laughs) So they distributed their research on Pottermore and they asked people uh, which house they'd been sorted into. Uh, You can do a a sort of online quiz and be sorted into one of the four houses. Mm-hmm. They asked them what house and then they got them to fill in um, a range of different personality measures. Mm-hmm. So to jump to to the results, it was mostly as expected by how each one of the houses is described in the books. So Gryffindors were found to be slightly more extroverted than others. Uh They expected that they'd be more open to new experiences, but it was about the same as everyone else. So, a bit iffy. For Hufflepuffs, they were more significantly more agreeable. Uh, More, they had more of a need to belong. They expected that they'd be more conscientious, but that was about the same as everyone else. Uh, Ravenclaws had a significantly greater need for cognition. And then Slytherins were higher in both the dark triad overall, which What's the dark triad? so oh, the dark, dark triad, triad personality, yeah, personality right. which is made up of three subscales, and they were highest in those as well. And so those three subscales are narcissism, Ma- Machiavellianism, psychopathy. Yeah, yeah. So pretty much a kind of fit with with the way that it's described in the books. The problem with this research is that I like I've read the books, yep. I've watched the movies. I definitely know Gryffindor, I definitely know Slytherin. You don't know the others as well. Yeah, like I can't think really of You're not a too many other characters. Devout pothead. <laughs> <laughs> Devout or otherwise definitely not a pothead. No. No. <laughs> so yeah, so that is interesting that you wouldn't kind of have as much of a understanding of what the other well, yeah, houses might I represent. I think what were the other characters? 
So well, in Hufflepuff and Ravenclaw in the books. Yeah, so they do come in as sort of characters on the side. So like in the um, <laughs> this is really going to show up my nerdiness. So things I can, I can name pretty much all the original Star Wars vintage. Okay, we can have a competition figures, in another so that's podcast. Yes, yeah, yeah. but so uh, sort of. I guess the characters on the side. So like Cedric Diggory, who's in the um, Triwizard mm-hmm. Tournament, is in Hufflepuff. And so what and, um, and, they're... and they're kind of um, friendly and, you know, part of sort of have that need to belong and that sort of, sort of diligent. Yeah. Yeah. And then Harry's girlfriend, Cho Chang, she's Ravenclaw and she's very brainy. That's the one where they kiss in the towel. Yeah. No, no, no. He asked her. In, in yeah, so, yeah, 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 yeah. That's it. So the other part of the results were that that people's personality aligned with. What, what was Le- <coughs> what was Luna? Uh, she's Gryffindor. Oh yeah. Yeah. She's so my favorite. yeah, I love her. Uh, the other part of it was that uh, people's personality traits aligned with the houses that they wanted to be in. So say they wanted to be in Gryffindor, they did endorse more extroversion than other people. Mm-hmm. Or if they wanted to be in Slytherin, they were higher on the Dark Triad, regardless of whether the, the sorting cat online had sorted them into that group or not. Question. Yeah. Is, does, so does that mean that people who want to be you know, in one house, they, yeah. they, they endorse those things more? So if we think about the sorting hat, does that mean that they're not the sorting hat's not just doing the neo. Yeah, the it's sorting hat. It's also doing hat. the neo PI and the MMPI. Absolutely. Because the because MMPI's it's got a lie scale on it. Definitely. And, you know, like you can tell that when you look at the sorting hat, especially in the first movie, where it kind of says to Harry, hey, look, I think you might be a Slytherin. And he has to kind of beg to convince the sorting hat that he's a Gryffindor. So certainly, certainly that element, it has a whole toolbox of psychological measures. <laughs> so yeah, so there you go. So their, their general conclusion was that through literature and movies, we identify with characters and sort of align ourselves with different personalities and groupings just as a natural, natural part of our enjoyment. <laughs> So there you go. Fantastic. Which house are you in? To be, to be continued, I'll have a look. What are, are, okay. you, are you? I was Ravenclaw. Oh, Ravenclaw. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's the nerdiness. I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll do it and I'll get back to you. On the All right. Yep. Well, join us next time to find out which house Hunter will be sorted in. <laughs> <laughs> Two shrinks, bye. See ya. See ya. See ya.